Hi, I'm Gary T. McDonald, author of The Gospel of Thomas the Younger, and I'm with uh, Lewis Shiner, the author of several great books, including uh, Slam, Glimpses, Say Goodbye, and his new magnum opus, Outside the Gates of Eden, which I've spent all morning rereading. And I'm delighted to be with him today and talk about his book. Um, Thank Lewis, you. Yeah, Lewis, tell me a little bit about how you decided to write this particular book. Well, it was a combination of a couple of things. Um, one of the major factors was I just finished reading Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. And it had really sort of cranked up my ambition, and I really wanted to try a, try to write a really big, really ambitious book. And so I just kind of asked myself, what would Tolstoy write about if Tolstoy were writing now? What's, you know, what are the big issues of our time? And the first thought I had, the very first thought like that popped into my head was, um, what happened to, to what we had going in the 60s? Why did that disappear? Um, why, why did, how did we end up in this greed culture that we're in right now? And, you know, where did all that idealism go? Well, you do a great job of it. Um, for people that don't know anything about the book, it follows a whole group of characters from the mid-60s all the way almost to the present. When, when does it end? In 2000? And, uh, well, I'm a little vague about that because uh, uh, the, la the very last section of the book is just says later. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's set sometime after 2016. Uh, I'm I'm figuring it's actually about 2020 or maybe after that. But you know we don't want to get the the dread science fiction label on it for creating uh, <laughs> well, the future. Well, one of the things that's most interesting about it and all your books is the way um, there's a, a focus on how much the music meant to that generation, to our generation. And uh, this book follows uh, members of a of a garage band that go on and play in various combinations all the way and, and become professional museum, musicians and become uh, big enough to play at Woodstock and on beyond that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how this music uh, interweaves into your writing and why it constantly does? Well. I get people ask me questions about writing a lot and, uh, you know, looking for advice. And the, the best advice I can give anybody is to write what you're really obsessed about and follow your obsessions. And um, I've been obsessed with music basically since uh, I saw Bob Dylan in 1965 on his, um, his tour with the band, his first electric tour. Uh, so I'm in Dallas in September of that year. And um, it really was a life-changing moment. As a friend of mine said, uh, it was one of the last moments when music probably could really change somebody's life. And, uh, and it changed mine. I read that section today where you described that concert in, you know, through the eyes of your main character. And he's with a friend of his. Did you actually attend that concert with a friend? Uh, that, that? Yep, yep, yep. And, and, played, and played together in a band? That you created the, the guy that I went to the concert with. I did not play in a band with, but uh, um, there was another. the the char The characters are sort of composites. Particularly, Alex is a composite of about three different guys that I went to high school with. One of them I was in a band with. Uh, the other guy was the guy who turned me on to Dylan, and then there was another guy whose uh, whose father was rich and and had the uh, 
you know, had the house with the swimming pool and stuff like that. So, you know, bits and bits and pieces from here and there. Um, the, the evocation of that concert is so brilliantly written. It, oh, it just well, takes you. you, it takes you there and uh, makes you feel so strongly about what's happening. And uh, I, I just, it was a joy to read, read again today. Well, thank you. Um, now, my understanding was that, that I was going to get to ask you some questions about your book at the same time. Is that, is that still on? Must we? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to, yes. Okay, um, I will submit. Yeah, um, you know, you were talking about brilliantly evoking uh, a particular time and place. Um, your novel, I thought, did the same thing, that it was brilliantly evoking the um, the time right at the zero bc or whatever it is the uh i don't know what the, the correct term is now for that particular period but the, the the period of um the new testament and i was just wondering what kind of research that you did to uh to get that kind of detail and authenticity well you know i can't um when you ask me about research i really t tend to think about all the research i did about um, the biblical research and the, um, uh, the, the period of the Roman Empire that I studied so much, uh, the, 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 the actual physical uh, geography of, uh, of, the, of the setting in, in both Judea and then later in Rome, I guess I just picked it up from reading other stuff and uh but the the but where I really had to study was in reading various um critical analysis of the of the new testament to to come up with the the ideas that are in the book uh for for people that don't know anything about the book it's it's um a faux gospel as if um a a a uh, a guy has discovered uh a new gospel uh, somewhere in the Middle East and brought it forward to the public. And uh, it's told through the eyes of both a nephew of Jesus, a, a man who, a, a young man who is both a nephew of Jesus and of the guy we call doubting Thomas in, in the gospels. So and, um, speaking of ideas, did the, I mean, one of the central ideas of the book is this idea that Paul, the apostle Paul, um, was really the problem, not the solution. That he was that he accounts for a lot of the sins of Christianity that uh, we are seeing kind of writ large today. Um, you must have obviously had that idea before you started writing the book, but um, did it like come to you in, in what they call a Damascene moment, like uh, like Saul on the road to Damascus who gets converted? Um, did you have like this blinding flash where you suddenly reevaluated uh, Paul? Or was this something that just took a long time that you'd been developing over years? Well, it did take a lot of years. It, uh, you know, I left the the fundamentalist church that I grew up in when I was in my mid-teens. And uh, for many years, uh, I struggled with the guilt about that. Anyone that's brought up in a fundamentalist family from birth, uh, it, we're, we are a different species. Uh, our operating system is different from everybody else's in the sense that we're programmed to look at the world a certain way. And it takes a long time to deconvert from all of that. But I did that in my teens. 
but didn't really have any sort of analytical or um, biblical critical approach to it. But when you talk about Paul, I discovered uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago a book by Chaim Maccabee called um, The Mythmaker, Paul and the Invention of Christianity. And that book really turned me around. It really showed me how this guy who in, – in Acts, there are a bunch of different Greek-speaking Jews that show up in Jerusalem and hear about this story of Jesus. But they're from – they are guys that were all raised in different parts of uh, the Roman Empire where there were all these mystery cults. And they were quite used to the idea of gods impregnating uh, mortal women and uh, a child <laughs> being born and becoming a god. And, right. And they grabbed onto Jesus' story and created this, this theology around it. And that was a revelation to, to understand that that was where all of this theology was coming from and that probably Jesus and his disciples would never have accepted it. They were Jews in Palestine that lived a very sort of uh, monotheistic uh, life and and thought pattern and they wouldn't have uh, bought into the idea that Jesus uh, that that God could just sort of divide divide himself into a son and a holy spirit and uh, live in three persons just I, I think this, this is kind of uh, one of the ways one of the things our books have in common I think is that both of us um, are looking at today's society and looking for historical things that that made that happen like I mentioned uh, the, the issue of the greed culture. But part of what's happening to that greed culture that I think is really bizarre is that um, the fundamentalists in many cases are driving it. This whole idea that godliness is, is uh, conferred upon you if you're rich enough. You mm -hmm. know, and that the quest for money is the same as the quest for goodness and that God rewards those who, who do good by giving them lots of money and you know, gold bathroom fixtures and all that kind of stuff. And um, do you see roots of that kind of thought in in Paul? I I'm not so sure that that's the case. Uh, I think that that's maybe a more modern development that happened as uh, fundamentalist Christianity sort of converged and melded into capitalism in the last two centuries. Uh -huh. uh, I think the early Christians, the Pauline Christians, like Paul, were were uh, communal in their way of living, and they were, and the earliest uh, Christians were poor, and um, they. I don't think they thought that way, and certainly yeah. Jesus was not that way at all. He was a wandering teacher that just w was obsessed with uh, finding a way to get closer to. Um, becoming one with with everything with god's creation with the what i call the god the realm of god uh it's usually translated as the kingdom of god or the kingdom of heaven but i translate it as the the realm of god which is eternity well yeah. speaking of jesus and, and all that stuff the, one of the biggest ideas in the book and you don't make that really explicit but i think for for those who are paying attention um this idea that jesus may have been a buddhist or at least a proto-buddhist well i know that there are a lot of people that that 
or, or some people that believe that Jesus was influenced by Buddhism, and maybe one can make a case that Buddhist missionaries did come all the way from uh, from India into um, through Palestine into Alexandria. We know that happened, but I I go more with the attitude that that uh, these were just ideas that were that were circulating at the time, and they aren't very different from what the Greeks had been playing with um, in the Cynic and uh, Stoic philosophies. Uh, if you look at those philosophers, uh, many of uh, Jesus' ideas and many ideas that, that, that feel very Buddhist are also present in, in that philosophy, but not necessarily as a result of contact with Buddhists, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. It, it's just one thing we don't, we don't know. Just sort of like the steam engine time idea that, that there's these ideas that are just floating around and suddenly five or six different variations of it kind of all show up at once. Exactly. There's a synchronicity of, of thought, I guess. And uh, that's uh, something that, that I, I find in your book is that they're, they're, these characters are all converging at, at different moments with, with uh, their times in such an interesting way. Uh, especially around the music, which becomes kind of like a spiritual force during that time. Yeah, I would agree with that, that the, that the music really does have a, at least at that time, had a spiritual component. I think there's much less of that going on right now. But yeah, I had um, I had a number of sort of signposts that when I you know had this kind of blinding flash where I came up with the idea for the book, I knew that there were a few things that I wanted to hit as I moved through the years. Woodstock, obviously, was one of them, the Summer of Love. These are kind of the obvious ones. But I had a couple of friends who got busted uh, in right after college. Um, um, I have an injury on one of my hands that kept me from uh, um, interfered with my playing guitar. There were, you know, just these various things that I wanted to, to touch on. Uh, I mentioned that I had three friends in, in high school that um, I've kind of built this composite character out of. Um, and one of them, his family would go down to Guanajuato uh, every Christmas. So mm-hmm. that quickly sort of uh, slotted into place. And um, and so there were milestones that were both kind of global. Um, there was the oil crisis in 1973. Uh, there was Ronald Reagan's election. You know, these, these things that were very or global events, but there were also sort of personal events that I uh, I wanted to incorporate as well. So that was, and that was like my my outline for the book was just these few ideas that I had of, of things that I wanted to hit, and I just sat down and started writing basically from you know from uh, um, from what I perceived as the first scene, not really knowing where I was going. You know, I knew the Dylan concert had to be in there fairly soon, but uh, um, just kind of let it come together spontaneously. Well, you do such a great job of evoking the history of things that you didn't um, have access to, like the uh, coffee shop scene in New York when right. uh, Dave, Dave Enrock and the Folkies and what was going on in San Francisco, all, all of that before we, we were old enough to, uh, to participate in any of that. Right. And your, your research really pays off in, in the way you uh, manage to dramatize all of that 
I did work hard on the, on the research aspect of it. I interviewed some people, including John Sebastian, uh, who was definitely integral to that uh, at Greenwich Village scene in the '60s, and uh, um, you know that was that was more the good old fashioned uh, book and and internet research rather than talking from my own experience. But you know, even so, your own memories are are always in doubt. <laughs> you've, uh, got to, yeah. you've got to confirm it. And also using uh, information from the internet, got to be, you know, got to make sure that uh, you've got some some reason to believe that whoever you're getting the information from really knows what they're talking about, because there's just lots of stuff that perpetuates. One of the most surprising things I thought uh, that came out of nowhere, as far as I, I could tell, in in my experience, and I think we have a, a lot of experience in common was the, the what you mentioned before about the uh, Mexican component of your story. Mm-hmm. Because um, it seems like uh, world music was a thing that just did not, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't a factor, you know, during the 60s or the 70s. And, and it's come up as a factor since then. But uh, you bring it back into that period in such an interesting way. Well, thanks. Right. There was there was actually a lot of Latin music going on, but it wasn't really identified as such. Cannibal and the Headhunters were actually Latinos in, in L.A. Sam the Sham was was Latino. Uh, Question Mark and the Mysterians; those guys were actually Latinos. Mm-hmm. So it was it was around, but it just wasn't uh, you know it wasn't seen as a marketing label in those days. Yes, but you know the first Lo- Los Lobos album that where where it actually had some of those uh, Mexican tunes, some oh, in Spanish. Yeah, yeah. that that uh, you you really get at by taking your character down to where that stuff uh, lives and yeah. evoke it really nicely. Well, thank you. I'm I'm a big fan of the mariachi music, and uh, in fact, uh, on one of our trips to Guanajuato. Um, I followed a bunch of mariachis around and uh, when the, the bookstore there had this huge coffee table book on mariachis and I just knew that uh, I could not let myself pass it by. So I had to lug that book around on the rest of the trip and bring it back on the plane and stuff like that. But um, yeah, mariachis are, are, are really interesting to me. It's a, a lot of people think they're just tourist music, but uh, um, the actual people in Mexico are, are very fond of them. Yeah. I love those old songs. You'll just hear people. You know, you walk you walk by a bar, and there'll be sixty or seventy people in the upstairs of the bar, all singing "Canta y No Llores." Uh-huh. Well, there's some real passion in that music too. That's... Yeah, I, I think so too. It speaks yeah. to me a lot. Well, yeah. um, speaking of passion and things, uh, um, you yourself are a Buddhist, right? Uh, and um, your your interest in that uh, spirituality and stuff, uh, how, how much influence did that have on, on the writing of the book? Well, it was crucial. Um, in fact, I would have never written the book had I not been a Buddhist. After I left uh, fundamentalist Christianity in my teens, um, I, I was interested in reading about Buddhism, and I did read a lot about Buddhism, but Buddhism is something that... that, that um, very difficult for a young person to, to practice because it uh, your <laughs> yeah. hormone your hormones are raging and uh, that fights against the uh, the impulse to, to sort of practice Buddhism. 
But yeah, you're supposed to supposed to forego desire, and, and teenagers are nothing but desire. <laughs> That's exactly right. So um, as I got older, and also as I sort of moved out of the movie business and started trying to find some peace in my life, uh, Buddhism became some, a perfect vehicle for practicing. And and as I learned more and more about the Buddhist teaching. I began to think back about the things that I had learned about Jesus when I was very young and seeing the parallels. And whereas uh, 10 years earlier, I just wouldn't have gone there at all, I started really getting interested in looking at the parallels. And in fact, uh, my blinding revelation for writing the book was the moment where I thought, oh yeah, I should, I should bring... I should try to take Jesus back from the Christians and, and like uh, restore him to his more wisdom and compassionate teacher um, persona rather than as the, uh, the god, that they, the demigod that the, the Christians made him into. And so uh, without, without having gone through Buddhism, I would have never come back to Christianity, I think. Have you gotten any reaction from Christians uh, about the book? Not really. Uh, it's it's really hard to um, to crack that. Uh, I was hoping that at some point the book would become controversial with them. Yeah, so I was that, wondering if you got any hate mail or anything like that. Well, uh, no, not yet. Uh, I do uh, deal with a bunch of uh, what's called progressive Christians, uh, and but they're more their sensibilities are much more like mine and uh they are they're not so they're not so prone to uh be react angrily or violently against what i've done which is you know which for a fundamentalist would be out and out blasphemy or heresy or something of course but um, you, uh, you mentioned uh, your time in hollywood do you feel that screenwriting gave you uh, uh an edge in terms of being able to visualize the the times and the places and the characters. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe uh, I think anytime you do a lot of intense storytelling, which is what I did for you know twenty years in Hollywood, you you sort of learn how to craft a story and pretty efficiently, and and also you know that because screenplays are so. Um, they're so short. They have to be so short. You have to really figure out how to put in the, the telling detail that makes the scene, uh, creates the, the, the scene in the in the mind of the reader uh, so that they're taken there. And maybe that, um, the you know, just technically having done that as much as I did it uh, helped me write uh, that way. Well, but I, I'm not aware so. of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm 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 guessing that it did because the book, like I say, is really vivid and in, in uh, um, and I think that visualization thing is very key. One of the things that I did for research that would not specifically show up in the book was just to search the internet for photos of the places and the time and and stuff like that that would that would just help me visualize. So I might not use a specific piece of research to. Um, you know, to, to, to buff up a scene, but I would, uh, it would be more of a, a general background kind of thing where if you could visualize it well enough, other stuff would start coming back, slang and, and, and smells and, 
you know, clothes and stuff like that. Did you encounter Michael Oakes during your research? The name is not familiar, no. Uh, Phil, Phil Oakes' brother, but oh, okay. he, he owns this huge archive of photographs. In fact, you know, if you look at most, a lot of stuff that from the 60s and 70s and 80s uh, about musicians, you, you know, you'll see down at the bottom, it's from his archive. Uh, that, but, I probably have seen him then, yeah. yeah. Uh, Phil shows up in the book, of course. Uh, yeah, I, I remember. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he was quite a character. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's 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 really interesting to me, and I didn't, I wasn't aware of this when I started writing it, but how crucial that Greenwich Village scene was to the music that evolved in the late '60s. It seems like, and uh, Richie Underberger, who's a, a '60s historian and a really, really uh, dedicated and, and really good one. Um, has talked about this, but uh, it's the idea that a lot of the people who are making the psychedelic music started out as folkies. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like there's a, there was a, you know, like, like uh, folk music was the gateway drug to psychedelic music. And so Country Joe and the Fish, the Grateful Dead, all those guys, the Airplane, um, they all used to play folk music when they first started out. And it Crosby, St- Crosby still Nash. Yeah, right. Crosby, well, Crosby and Stills for sure, and Neil Young, and yeah. So that was an interesting discovery, and and uh, 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 an interesting little continuity there from, or evolution, I guess, really from folk music sort of evolving directly into the psychedelic stuff. When you create characters, have you ever uh, found a physical picture of someone you think looks like your character and stood it up in front of you, and as you write and <laughs> Yeah, I guess I've done that a few times. I've, 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 or passed someone on the street, and they, they just had a very powerful presence, and uh, sort of tucked that away in my mind and used it. Yeah, I've, I've done that. How about you? I have. Uh, there, there was one screenplay I wrote at one point where I just couldn't get a handle on these three women, and uh, so I went over to my CD collection and pulled out a picture of, uh, of. Uh, uh, these various singers, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Ricky Lee Jones and uh, mm-hmm. Sarah Mac- Sarah McLaughlin and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, what's the the Canadian? Um, I'm blanking. Johnny Mitchell. No, the uh, the Sarah uh, McLaughlin's Canadian also. Yeah, uh, no the the one that was uh, the great lesbian uh, singer. I, I'm blanking. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Um, Anyway, uh, and I just kept those the CDs around and just kept glancing back from that picture of uh, Ricky Lee Jones to the Sarah McLaughlin. And, yeah, and it, it helps you form an idea of because you have such a internal feel for these characters by virtue of the songs that these women have written. And, so, yeah. Yeah. and, and you need to be able to visualize them and, and visualize mannerisms and stuff like that to really – uh, write effective prose, I think. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it's it's interesting to me. I, I have characters that are based very, very strongly on people I know. And there are characters like the Skip Shaw character who was in Say Goodbye and, and mm-hmm. who comes back in, uh, in Gates of Eden, who is just completely invented. You know, he, he's not... He's got a little Tim Harden in him, maybe, but uh, he doesn't look like Tim Harden in my mind. And, you know, you just wonder sometimes where these things come from. 
Sometimes you have to artificially push it by looking for a photo or something like that. And then sometimes it's just like a gift. Skip's a great character. He's a very, he's a great character. It's, it's funny. I, I, I had a number of people uh, really respond to, to Skip, and I, I think he's just such a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't say he's a, a wonderful guy, but he's a great character. Uh, yeah, I guess the, the two are not the same. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, genius is often tortured. And, uh, That's right. Uh, genius is pain, as they said on National Anthem. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, well, let me ask you a, a, a sort of structural question. Um, you're, you're billing the, the book as a novel. There's no like real pretense otherwise, and yet you have footnotes and an introduction by uh, by this by this character Timothy X Hardesty, who is a fictional character. That's um, right. Did you feel like that was a in some ways a dangerous uh, move to make? Well, it, it came from uh, one of my favorite books of all time is Thomas Berger's Little Big Man. And mm. it's also a faux memoir, you know, like uh-huh. my book. And it opens with this sort of uh, snitty sort of academic mm-hmm. sp- in- introducing how he came across this character and, and uh, you know, and, and taking a very sort of um, – superior and condescending attitude toward the, the, the guy that is going to relate this whole story. And so I just loved that so much that I, I thought, well, you know, I'll do that here too. But also, okay. it, also it gave me permission then to pepper the book with footnotes because as I'm deconstructing Christianity, as I tell the story, I really need to back it up with, um, with I need to make my case by you know citing certain uh, Bible scriptures and certain um, allusions to uh, Roman writers and and things like that, and that having him be the uh, editor translator of this this found uh, set of scrolls gave me the the opportunity to to uh, you know. Uh, then throw that element of all these footnotes in there. And I didn't by design think, Oh, I'm going to try to write a postmodern novel. But in the end, I think that's kind of what I did. And it's postmodern also in the sense that it could not exist without other texts. If if the new Testament Mm -hmm. didn't exist, the the book just wouldn't exist. So, um, I, I I was kind of hoping that some literary people would would take a look at it and you know see, but I haven't I haven't gotten to that audience yet either. Yeah, it's tough. Well, I think we're we're starting to run out of time here. So can we put in final plugs here for uh, the Gospel of Thomas the Younger and uh, and also uh, for Lou Shiner's brilliant book Outside the Gates of Eden. Cool. Well, thank you. I Thanks. have in, enjoyed the talk, and uh, uh, I urge everyone to check out your book because it's really, uh, it's really beautifully written and thought-provoking at the same time.